Amen. This morning's scripture reading comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're going to look at the first two verses of 1 Timothy chapter 6. So please turn there with me in your Bibles. If you need one, there are Black Pew Bibles in the pew in front of you or perhaps under you if you're in the back. Uh, But I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word, if you are willing and able. First Timothy chapter six, we're going to read from verse one to the the first part of verse two. We'll save the last sentence in verse two for next time. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. The Bible teaches that work is a good thing. From the very beginning of mankind, the book of Genesis tells us that God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And throughout Scripture, there are commands to work for one's own needs, to to work for the benefit of others, and to work for the glory of God. And this positive perspective of work has been reinforced by Christians over the years. During the Protestant Reformation, men like Martin Luther and John Calvin called believers back to the goodness of work, no matter what one's profession or occupation was. Calvin preached this. He said, when a man works in his labor to earn his living, when a woman does her housework, and when a servant does his duty, One thinks that God does not pay attention to such things, and one says they are secular affairs. Yes, it is true that such work relates to this present and fleeting life. However, that does not mean that we must separate it from the service of God. If a chambermaid sweeps the floor, if a servant goes to fetch water, and they do these things well, it is not thought to be of much importance. Nevertheless, when they do it, offering themselves to God... Such labor is accepted from them as a holy and pure oblation or offering. This perspective that all work is honoring to God and the robust theology of work that the reformers championed influenced future generations of Christians. This included the Puritans who developed a reputation for diligence and discipline. And all of this eventually led to the coining of the term, the Protestant work ethic, by a well-known sociologist named Max Weber in 1905. So, as you sit here today in a non-denominational Protestant church, I assume that most of you would agree that the concept of working hard is biblical, and it is something that honors God. Work is good, and... It's from God. 
But as we all know, work can also be difficult. Work can feel like work. It can feel hard. It can feel like toil. It can feel like labor. And this is a result of the fall. After Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God said to Adam in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 19, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the, the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. As believers, we are called to work. But we also work knowing that we are destined to face thorny circumstances, which cause pain, which produce sweat. And that is going to be our reality throughout our lives here on this earth. And I trust that all of you who have worked in any capacity for any reasonable amount of time have experienced that. You have been stressed by your work. You've experienced passive, aggressive managers and and rude team leads. You felt pressure from those above you. You felt cornered into hard decisions. You faced ungrateful patients or impossible to please parents. You felt insecure in your work. You felt defeated in your work. You've felt underappreciated. Even here in Silicon Valley, where companies have lured the best and brightest with promises of high pay and uh, corporate campuses that are like dreamlands, great work, life balance, and unparalleled benefits, all while helping to solve world problems, the luster of all this has begun to fade in recent years. Uh, work life is certainly not terrible by most standards of measurement, but there is a growing sense of dissatisfaction and concern among those in tech. And jobs are harder to come by. Layoffs are the new normal. Big tech seems bloated. And while there is still optimism in pockets of the valley, the curse seems to be having a moment right now. We feel this in our church. As so many of your prayer requests are about work. And that's because the stresses and difficulties of our occupations and our vocations are a constant concern. As Christians, we we live in this tension. On the one hand, we understand that work is necessary and it's good. But on the other, we continually face all these difficulties that can seem inescapable at times. And this was true for the Ephesian church in 1 Timothy as well. They too were living in intention when it came to their work lives. And the situations they were in were actually much harder than what most of us have to deal with today. The church in 1 Timothy was dealing with the issue of how to work as slaves. They were trying to figure out how to work faithfully as those in bondage to their masters. And Christian slaves in particular needed help in figuring out how to find some balance on the the seesaw of the goodness of work and the, the fallen nature of their work as slaves. Now, even though our context is not the same as theirs, that we encounter similar challenges. We, we deal with bosses that aren't always fair. We can feel enslaved to our jobs. 
And though we experience the joys, we also experience the complications of working with colleagues who are fellow believers. We can struggle to have the right perspective on work. And so we turn this morning to the opening verses of 1 Timothy chapter 6 for help. In these verses, the Apostle Paul provided two requirements for Christian slaves in Ephesus to embrace in their work. But, but these requirements aren't unique to slaves. They apply to all those who work and labor under authority. And so I believe that all of us need to take note today of these two job requirements for Christians. Two job requirements for Christians. Because fulfilling these requirements in our jobs will help us to better navigate the difficulties of trying to do good work in this fallen world. We find the first requirement in verse 1. As Christians, we are required to honor authorities at work for the sake of the gospel. Honor authorities at work for the sake of the gospel. At the beginning of chapter 6, Paul writes, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Now notice that Paul is clearly addressing slaves here. The Greek word he uses is doulos. It's translated bondservants in the English Standard Version. And that's likely because that word doesn't have the same negative connotations that the word slave does today. But it's, it's essentially the same word as slave. It refers to someone who is in bondage to and subservient to a master. It refers to someone who is under a, a yoke. Now, to understand who exactly the people to whom Paul was writing were, we need to first understand how slavery worked in the, the Roman Empire. During those days, slaves were, were prevalent. It's estimated that it was about 10 to 20 percent of the empire, or Maybe 5 to 10 million people were slaves. And in major cities like Rome or Ephesus, slaves might constitute up to a third of the, the population. They were an essential part of the social structure and the economy of the day. And many of these people became slaves as prisoners of war due to Roman expansion. Many were also born into slavery. But a good number also sold themselves into slavery for economic reasons. For, for the poor... Slavery could provide critically needed stability and security in their lives. The slaves were also from all kinds of ethnicities. And they had all kinds of jobs. Many were manual laborers and life was difficult for them. But some were also managers and teachers and craftsmen and merchants and officials. Some slaves even owned or, or managed their own slaves. Slaves were, were so pervasive in Roman society that you might not even know that you were interacting with a slave, especially in a large city like Ephesus. They came from all kinds of backgrounds. They held all kinds of occupations. And what had apparently happened in Ephesus is that some of these slaves heard the preaching of the gospel of Christ. They heard the glorious news that their sins could be forgiven through the Lord Jesus who died on the cross for them. And they were transformed. And, and it is these slaves, these brothers and, and sisters, to whom Paul is writing here in verse 1. 
And he instructs them to, to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. The word regard in verse 1 means to consider or to intellectually engage an idea. Paul is telling the, the slaves to consider in their minds that their masters are worthy of all honor. You know, notice that he doesn't say that these masters have conducted themselves in a way that makes them worthy of honor. They could have been horrible masters. They could have been unjust masters. But Paul instructs all bondservants to regard their masters as worthy of honor. And that means that they are to honor their masters not because they have necessarily acted nobly as masters, but because they are in positions of authority over them worthy of honor. Throughout the Bible, we see that God calls his people to respect authorities in the various social orders that they are placed in. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. He says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. The idea here is that those in authority over you in your vocation are to be honored because of their authority. In God's sovereignty, you have been placed under them, and so you are, or they are, worthy of your honor. And it's all honor. Not just a little bit, not just a dash, not just a pinch, but all. This honor is the same kind of honor that Paul instructed the Ephesian church to show their widows and their elders in chapter 5. But without the, the financial component. It's an attitude of respect. It's a willingness to obey. Now turn with me to uh, Titus chapter 2. Just a couple books over from Timothy. And I want you to look with me just very briefly at verses 9 and 10. Titus chapter 2 verses 9 and 10. In Titus chapter 2 verse 9, Paul writes, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. Now notice what this should look like. They are to be well-pleasing. Not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. That's the kind of honor that authorities in the workplace deserve. We should submit to them. We should aim to please them. We should not be arguing with them or constantly complaining about them. We, we shouldn't be stealing from them. Now, I know when we come to a passage like this, some of you may be thinking, is this right? Is this really Paul's instruction to Christian slaves? Honor your masters? What about their freedom? Why doesn't Paul denounce slavery in stronger terms? Why, why doesn't he call upon slaves or, or even at least the, the people in the church who are free to do something about this social evil? Why does he just tell them to honor them? even if they're unjust. Well, first of all, we need to understand that slavery in Roman times was much different than the slavery we tend to be familiar with in our country. 19th century slavery in America was undeniably racist and unjust at its core. In 21st century slavery also exists. And today, millions and millions of people are trafficked for sex and other forms of labor against their wishes. And that is heinous. 
And these more recent slaves have been victims of crimes, of violence, and deceit. But Greco-Roman slavery wasn't the same. It wasn't inherently racist. It wasn't fundamentally deceptive. It didn't dehumanize people to the same extent. Now, now don't mistake what I'm saying. I don't mean to defend Roman slavery because it's wrong any time you start treating people as property. Slavery was, was never a part of God's created order. Instead, it's another sad and sobering reality of the fall. It's one of the many ways that work has been tainted by sin. But the slavery being practiced in Roman times wasn't the same monstrous atrocity that we're more familiar with. And by the time of the New Testament, many slaves were already being freed because of provisions adopted into Roman law. This was called manumission. In fact, so many slaves were, were being freed in those days that it got to the point where Emperor Augustus actually introduced laws to curb the trend for a while, lest society fall into disarray. And so the urgency to denounce slavery just wasn't as strong as we might be tempted to think. Second, we see that if Paul started to call all the slaves to revolt against their masters, and he tried to overthrow the system that was so embedded in Roman society, it was likely to harm rather than help the cause of Christianity. Look at what Paul writes at the end of verse 1. Why should these slaves continue to honor their masters? Well, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. There was a real risk in those days that if slaves became Christians and then all of a sudden they started to disrespect their masters and advocate for change in their relationship, those masters in that society would reject Christianity. They would revile its teaching. God's reputation would be damaged in that society. Masters might just say, Christianity just leads to, to disrespect, causes all my slaves to become lazy. These Christians have, have no integrity. Their, their religion just leads to chaos. And so at that point in time, Paul seemed more concerned about the reputation of the gospel than he was about producing social reform. He was more concerned about helping believers navigate their current reality as Christians so that they might commend the gospel with their lives because he knew that the gospel was the real power to change. It was the gospel that would transform societies. And in time, that proved true. And slowly but surely, the gospel swept across the world, and Christians were and continued to be at the forefront of seeking to end slavery in this world. Now, I want to be clear that Paul himself was not soft on slavery. It's not that he didn't care about it. If you look back at 1 Timothy chapter 1, and you go to verse 10 there, you'll see that he associates enslavers, those who are slave dealers, with the lawless and the disobedient. He associates them with the ungodly and, and sinners and the unholy and the profane. And so there is no mistaking how Paul feels about those who kidnap others and enslave them. Also, if you were to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21, sometime on your own, if you were to go there, you'll see that he encourages slaves who are able to obtain their freedom to avail themselves of that opportunity. And in the book of Philemon, Paul also calls upon his friend Philemon to free his Christian slave, Onesimus. 
But here in 1 Timothy 6, Paul focuses his attention on helping Christian slaves honor their masters despite the fact that some of them might be quite harsh and others might be unfair and others might be unreasonable. Why? Because he knew that if the testimony of Christians was above reproach in the workplace, if Christian slaves responded differently to their masters than non-Christian slaves, and if Christian employees respected their bosses differently than non-Christian employees, then God's reputation would be upheld and the gospel might have some kind of attractive power. You see, God cares about our reputation as believers in this world. We see this throughout the book of 1 Timothy. In chapter 3, verse 7, he said that elders must be well thought of by outsiders. In chapter 5, verse 7, he commanded the church to care for one another so that they may be without reproach. God cares about how we come across in this world. And when our testimony at work, whether we're slaves or modern day employees, is one of showing all honor to those in authority, we don't just commend ourselves. We commend God and the gospel. But that also means that we need to make sure that people at work know that we're Christians. Because then the connection between our attitude at work and our faith can be made clear to others. Through our attitude toward authority at work, we defend the gospel. Through the respect that we show our managers and our bosses, we evangelize in a sense. We, we demonstrate that the gospel produces responsible workers who are not just motivated by what's in it for them, but who are motivated by, by something greater, the reputation of their God. And so as Christians, we should have a sterling reputation wherever we do work, whether that's at a company or in our schools or even at home. We should be known for our integrity and our respect for others. If you're lazy and you're disrespectful at work, please don't tell other people you're a Christian. Okay? You're damaging the cause of the gospel. But get your work life right. And then let people know that you love Christ and work in such a way, especially as you relate to others above you whom others are tempted to complain about, that others will see something different and attractive about your faith. In Colossians 3, Paul writes this, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So the first job requirement for the Christian is to honor authorities at work for the sake of the Lord, for the sake of the gospel. The second requirement that we find in our passage this morning is to serve humbly at work for the benefit of others. Serve humbly at work for the benefit of others. In verse 1, Paul addressed slaves who had unbelieving masters. But in verse 2, he addressed those who actually had masters who were Christians. And, and he wrote there, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. He warned these 
bondservants to not disrespect their Christian masters because they were Christians, because they were brothers in Christ. And it's not hard to figure out why they might be tempted to do this. Remember that the gospel had transformed these Ephesians. It had freed them from their slavery to sin. It had liberated them to live a a new life in Christ with a new hope. And as the, the gospel reached all strata of society, it saved all kinds of people, uniting them in Christ. And and Paul affirmed this in Galatians chapter three, verse twenty eight. He wrote, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you will all one in Christ Jesus. So A natural conclusion that these slaves may have made is that if we're all equal now in Christ, if if slave owners are serving together with slaves in the church, if we're eating and drinking together at the Lord's Supper, if if we're one family now in Christ, if, if I'm sitting next to my master during service and we're singing the same hymns of praise together, then why is this master of mine still keeping me in bondage? Why does Monday look so different from Sunday? Why do I have to to still submit to him? Aren't we brothers? And, And I think that train of thought resonates with us. It's easy to become upset and frustrated and to think the worst about others at work when we feel like we are being mistreated. And it would be especially upsetting if it's another Christian who is acting that way against us. But notice what Paul writes in verse 2. He acknowledges that some are tempted to disrespect their Christian brothers who are in positions of authority over them. But he writes, rather they must serve all the better. Since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Paul doesn't encourage these slaves to make a claim in the workplace based on their equality in Christ. He doesn't encourage these slaves to think of themselves and advocate for themselves. He doesn't encourage them to try to fight for their rights. He doesn't give them space to feel like the victim in this situation. Instead, he provides a completely different perspective. He says, because these masters are fellow believers, and because they are loved by God, and because they should be loved by you, you should serve them all the better. Now, I actually prefer the the translation all the more, which some other English translations use, and that would mean that we're not necessarily to work harder for Christians, because whatever we do and whomever we do it for, we should do it heartily for the Lord, but because they are fellow believers, we should have even more reason all the more reason to work excellently for them. Because we know that they can benefit from our good service. And what would have been striking here for these slaves in their Roman context is the fact that through this service, they would become, in essence, the benefactors of their masters. In Roman society, you have to understand This idea of benefactors and benefactees was so prevalent. It it was masters who were known to be the benefactors of their servants. The socially superior were expected to help the socially inferior 
so that the inferior might in turn receive some kind of privileges or honor. But here, Paul reverses the roles. And he says that as a bondservant, as one in a subservient position, you have the opportunity to help your fellow brother in Christ. And he is teaching a principle of service that Christ taught. As believers, we are not called to seek higher and higher social positions. We are not called to try to finagle our way into positions of power and and authority in the workplace. We are not to view ourselves as the oppressed who need to overthrow those who are impressing us. Instead, as those who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. As those who have a, a heavenly home guaranteed for us. As, as those who have the hope of a resurrected life. As those who look forward to the day when we will reign with Christ in glory. As, as those who have been given access already to every spiritual blessing in Christ. We already have all the status we need. This is the stunning result of faith in the gospel. And, and from that position of security, we are free to adopt the mentality of a servant so that others, other believers, and non-believers as well, benefit from our works of service. Jesus put it this way in Luke 22, verse 25. He said, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? And he said, but I am among you as the one who serves. Indeed. Mark writes it this way, for even the Son of Man came not to what? Be served. But what did he do? He came to to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul writes in in Philippians chapter 2 verses 6 to 8 that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. What did he do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So to what extent did Jesus humble himself to serve us even though he had every right to equality with God? To the point of death on a cross. Notice how different this is from the mindset of this world. We live in a world in which people are constantly demanding their rights. We live in a society in which people want to play the victim card. We live among people who want to overthrow those different from them that they perceive to be in positions of power. We we spend most of our weeks in workplaces in which our coworkers are constantly looking out for themselves. And the temptation is to follow the crowd. The temptation is to disrespect authority, to look out for yourself, to demand your rights. But as a Christian, your responsibility, your calling, your job requirement is to adopt an attitude of service. Because you have all that you need in Christ already. You may not have all that you want in this life or in this world or in your work. 
but you have all that you need for your life right now in Christ. And when you internalize that truth, when you truly believe that truth, it will free you from the shackles of bondage that so many are in trying to become great in the world. And it should free you to live like your Savior who made it his mission on earth to serve even those who severely mistreated him. As believers, we have the, the privilege to approach our work from an entirely different perspective. The gospel should change us. It should give us the security to work in this world in a way which the attitudes of this world never can. And it should cause us all to approach our work in a new way. We are free to serve humbly at work for the benefit of others and not merely for ourselves. Now, does that mean that we have to endure all kinds of wrongs in the workplace? Does that mean as believers we can't try to correct injustices? Are we forced to become doormats, trampled upon by the world as they are seeking to move up? No. Uh, We can still advocate for what is fair and good in God's eyes. We shouldn't just turn a blind eye to injustice. And we have various mechanisms to advocate for justice today. We have policies that we can appeal to in the workplace. We have laws that we can support and vote for. We have platforms to make injustices known. But we need to be careful that any action we take is still rooted in the reality that as believers, our identity is secure. Our desire should not be to become masters in this world, but to serve others like our master in heaven. Now today, none of you are in the exact situation that these Christian slaves found themselves in in Ephesus. You aren't bound to a job. You aren't bound to a master. Now, I understand that some of you may feel bound to a job for various reasons, but not in the exact same way. So you don't necessarily have to endure bad masters. I know having a difficult boss can feel like torture. Right? It can make it hard for you to sleep. It can cause a ton of anxiety. Today you're free to change jobs. But as you think through that, be sure to consider your motivations. Or as you consider other opportunities, are you still honoring those in authority over you? Are you still working hard for the sake of the gospel? Are you serving humbly and thinking about how you can still provide benefit to others? In our society today, you aren't stuck with a job like these slaves. But as Christians, you are stuck with a responsibility of protecting the honor and reputation of God and the gospel. Work is good, but it's also hard. Yet because you have been redeemed by Christ, you can work for the Lord and for others. And that should cause you to approach your work from a different perspective. It should cause you to try your best to honor those above you so that the gospel is commended. Watch your complaining. Fulfill the responsibilities given to you. Let people know that you're a Christian. And it should cause you to serve humbly so that others are helped. Work diligently. Don't just think about what work can give you, 
whether it's more pay or better benefits or a visa or some kind of status in this world. Instead, have an orientation to serve for the sake of others. There is no promise in God's word that work is ever going to be easy in this life. There's no promise that you're going to find a a dream job in this world that is free from trouble. Uh, Paul here didn't promise the slaves in Ephesus that they should expect freedom from their masters as Christians. Instead, he spoke into their reality. Instead, what we are all promised is the cursed. What we are promised is pain and, and sweat as we labor in this world. But as Christians, we can have a different perspective on how we approach work. We should have different motivations that can help us as we encounter various difficulties in our jobs. So whether slave or free or whatever occupation you have, God has given you opportunities to glorify him and love others like Christ loved us through your work. So fulfill your duties to honor him and serve others for his glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we recognize that the wisdom of your created creation plan, how you sent man in the garden and called him to, to work and to keep it. And we thank you that you, you give us this responsibility because we get an opportunity to, to have dominion in this earth and to experience its beauty and its, and its glory um, and to give you glory for all that we do. We pray that you would help us as your people to, to embrace the work that you have given us. And the times when our jobs, our, our work is difficult or hard, give us the perspective that we should have as believers. Give us the mind of Christ. Help us to be willing to serve. Help us to think of your glory and your gospel. Help our testimony as believers in the workplace to, to be one in, one that is above approach. Um, make us, as, as Redeemer Bible Fellowship, a people that are known for their industry and their integrity and for our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.